Friends, let's pray together. Father, we pray now as we turn our attention to your word that the work that you have begun in each person here will continue, that you will continue to change our hearts and our minds and our actions, that you would continue to conform us into the likeness of your son, that you'd give us great joy in the Christian life that you've given us, and that we would look in anticipation for your return. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In September of 2017, the BBC ran an article that highlighted a growing trend among people, particularly people in Europe. And the trend is that people have started to marry themselves. The article begins like this. It says, every little girl dreams of the day that she gets to walk down the aisle in a white dress toward her Prince Charming. But when a Prince Charming didn't come along for Italian fitness trainer Laura Messi, she decided to forget that piece and move along with her big day anyway. In a ceremony that was not actually legally binding, the woman said, I do, to herself, in front of bridesmaids, 70 guests, and a three-layer wedding cake. I firmly believe that each of us must first all love ourselves, said Messi. You can have a fairy tale even without a prince. Her near lavish wedding seemed to prove it. But she went on to admit, if one day I find a man with whom I can plan a future, I'll be happy. But my happiness does not depend on him. Proponents of this growing trend, which is dubbed sologamy, not monogamy or polygamy, but sologamy, say that it's not necessarily about feminism, but about celebrating and embracing those who have not found the social affirmation of partnership in a marriage. Huh. What do you make of that? I'll tell you what I make of it. We live in a culture right now that is very much devoted to the fulfillment of the self. And sologamy, as they're calling it, is just the next natural progression of a process of justifying a self-centered life. A life where we can build now structures around justifying self-centeredness and the idea, this sort of vague idea of self-fulfillment. But for a Christian, of course, you think about your life and you recognize that we are all self-centered in certain ways. But as we grow in maturity and in faithfulness to the Lord, we actually become less self-centered and move to a place of being others-centered. That is the common or ordinary experience for the Christian. We enter into this dynamic with God in the Christian life in which we recognize that the worship of God and the following of Jesus is a combination of giving and receiving. That we receive the good news of the gospel, that Jesus forgives us our sins and restores us to God through the cross, and we have faith in him. 
We receive the word of God as it's written in the scriptures and as we hear it taught to us. We receive the fellowship of God and the fellowship of God's people through those people themselves who serve to build us up and encourage us and help us continue to mature in faithfulness, particularly in the context of a local church. And conversely, we give. We don't just receive, we also give. We give to God worship and praise and adoration. We give to him by serving him. And serving him usually means serving other people with his motives and goals and in his name. And we give. We give the gospel to people. The same gospel that we have received, we also then turn and give to people who don't know him so that they can enter into a relationship with God and receive the great benefits that you've received in that relationship. And so a Christian grows to become an others-centered person who lives an others-centered life. How are you doing in that? We see the importance of this example in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me. Turn to page 986 if you're grabbing the Pew Bible. Today we continue on in this series that we are calling The Ordinary Days. And we're looking at, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the pattern of the ordinary Christian life as it's formed throughout the day in and day out rhythm and habits and patterns of ordinary days of this life. And we come to this place in chapter 2, starting at verse 17, where we see the dynamic of an others-centered person, the giving and receiving that happens in the Christian life, how it plays out very practically for the Apostle Paul, how you might expect to play out for you. And so this is what he says. In verse 17, it says, Paul, writing to this church, says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason... When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come back to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, 
for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. And so we see the dynamic, and you hear as you listen to the words read a certain type of tone, don't you? You hear a tone that communicates affection and care and a longing, not just to be with the other, but a longing to see the other grow and become faithful and express love and be holy. And as you see that and as you hear that, you observe very quickly that there is one who is standing in the way of this other-centered life, who seeks to undo the work that Paul is trying to do or to block him from doing it any further. And that is the person of Satan. Satan actively attempts to subvert God's work in you and through you. And look at where we see that in the text. Verse 18, we see it in two places. The first is in verse 18. Paul is saying he wants to come to them again and again because he wants to know how they're doing. But, verse 18, Satan hindered us. Secondly, look at verse 5 of chapter 3. Again, he expresses We want to hear about what's going on in your life. We want to see the good things that God is doing in you. And we could bear it no longer. We sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter, the tempter is Satan, had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Satan is trying to hinder the work of the gospel by hindering the apostles from coming and by tempting people away from the faith. The idea that Satan hindered them or stopped them from coming is described by a word that is often used in description of a military battle in which one army stops or hinders the advance of the oncoming army. And if you know military history at all, you know that in order to do that, an army will do almost anything that they can. They blow up bridges. They tear up roads. They create physical barriers. Anything that they can do to stop the oncoming advance. And so the description here is one of warfare. Satan is the adversary. The advance is the gospel spread by people in the power of the Holy Spirit to people. And the battle is a battle over souls. The souls of people. The warfare imagery is woven throughout the New Testament, isn't it? And it's helpful for us to remember that we are actually in the middle of this cosmic battle of good versus evil, God versus Satan, what is right versus what is wrong. Because I don't know about you, 
But most of us probably don't go through our life day in and day out thinking about the fact that we are right in the middle of a war. (laughs) But here we have a helpful reminder, just just a glimpse peeling back the curtain to remind us. And it's important to remember because as 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that Paul is talking about the nature of forgiveness and he tells that church to forgive so that they would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. We don't want to be ignorant of what's happening. And so we see that he tries to stop the advance of the gospel. Secondly, we see that he tries to tempt people, verse 5, toward unbelief. Now, Paul's concern for these people is that the, before the gospel would take root in them, before what they heard would actually become responded to in faith, that Satan would come in and tempt them into a different direction or toward unbelief. And the way that he does that is plenty. We know that to be true, right? That temptation toward unbelief could come in the form of uh, sin through physical pleasure, It could come in the form of allures to the world. Temptation toward unbelief could come when you see or experience the cost of actually following Jesus. And in this case, that cost is the cost of affliction. Temptation toward unbelief can come in conflict in your family. Or it can come in the introduction of competing philosophies or ideas that are attractive to you. We don't often think about Satan working in this way, but indeed he does. I think of the story that several years ago there was a crowd of people standing outside the lion cage at the zoo. And the people stood there and they were looking at the lion who was laying there and they were wondering the good purpose that the lion might serve. And as they were watching, an attendant entered the cage from the side door and began to sweep and clean the cage. And shivers went down the spine of all the people who were watching because now this attendant was in the lion cage alone with the beast. And he was going about his work sweeping and he did not appear to have any sort of weapon for self-protection if the lion would attack him. And in spite of his composure as he went about his work, everybody looking on said well clearly he will just avoid the beast at all costs or at least if he gets near to him that his guard would go up that his posture would change that there'd be an utmost respect given to the powerful animal but nothing of the kind occurred in fact as the janitor made his way near the beast he took his broom and he gave him a shove And the lion turned and didn't do much of anything, but he hissed at him in disapproval. And as the janitor stood there, the lion got up and went to a different corner of the cage and laid back down. And one of the onlookers looked at the man and he said, you are certainly a brave man. No, I ain't brave, said the janitor, and kept going about his sweeping. Well then, the onlooker said, then surely the cat must be tame. No, he answered again, he ain't tame. Well, I say again that if you're not brave and the cat isn't tame, then why 
doesn't the cat attack you when you hit him with the broom? And the man chuckled, and he said, Mister, he's old, and he ain't got no teeth. (laughs) You know, that idea of the lion being old and not having the ability to bite is, is the way that our culture is tempted to think about Satan. Satan is an old idea. He's an old idea that doesn't really have much bite to it anymore. And so let's just pretend or ignore that part of the Christian life. But Peter warns against this in 1 Peter 5.8. He warns against that precise disposition. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the good news, of course, comes in the gospel the end of all things, Romans 16.20, says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so there's a sense for the Christian that the victory is won, but the ongoing battle is real, and the battle is over souls, the souls of people. And we endure attack, and we resist temptation, and we invest the gospel in those that we are fighting for, and there's a reason for it. There's a lot of reasons for it, but one of the reasons for it mentioned in this text is found in verse 19. So let's turn our attention there for a moment. Because we see this very interesting description. In chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says to the Thessalonians, For what is our hope, or our joy, or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. It's a curious expression. But the more you think about the true nature of things, and the more you consider the things of greatest value, then you begin to see how this makes sense. Throughout this book, the second coming of Jesus has been in view consistently. Every chapter of 1 Thessalonians mentions the second coming in some way. Here is the mention for chapter 2. And so these apostles are looking forward to the return of Jesus. And they're setting that up as a common posture or disposition of the Christian life. That we don't just look forward to what's going to happen today or tomorrow, but that there is actually the end in sight. And as they're looking forward to that, they're asking themselves a question. And it's a question that I think every one of us, I want to challenge every one of us to ask ourselves. This is the question. What is the thing that will be most valuable that I can lay before the Lord at his coming? What is the thing that I can set before him when he returns? When Jesus comes back, in all majesty, everyone will recognize him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Everyone. 
everyone will bend the knee before him. Whether they had put their faith in him and followed them his whole, your whole life, or whether you had neglected him or ignored him and thus become his enemy, all of creation will recognize his coming. And all of creation will have to reckon with the fact that when he comes, he comes in glory and majesty and power. And the apostles think to themselves, when this day comes, it will be a natural response to give to him what will be seen as pleasing to him. It it will be desirous for us to have him look upon us with favor, to give him things, to present him with gifts that are truly fit for a king. Because that's what you do when a king comes. And that's what you do when you recognize this king, the king of the universe, in radiant glory. The natural response for everyone will be to worship him in any possible way that they can because they recognize his infinite value. This is what explains the vision of Revelation chapter 4. Some of you are familiar with it. John has this vision and it says in chapter 4, at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. For the from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there were, as it was, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is what happens when faced with pure, brilliant, loving, just, powerful majesty. You do whatever you can do to worship. 
And so the apostles are thinking to themselves, how can we worship? He is coming back. What will be the most valuable to him when he comes? What will give him the most glory? What will make him the most pleased and thereby make us the most pleased? I know. I could give him my horse. Ah, but he's kind of a dumb horse. So maybe that's not the best option. I could give him my tent. I'm a very good tent maker. The best in all the land. But what does he need a tent for? I could give him my money. I don't have very much, but it is something. But then again, what is he going to buy? He already owns everything. So what could I give him? What would be the most valuable to him? What would give him the greatest joy? I know. People. I will present him with people. Could it be that people are the most valuable to God outside of his own relationship and glory within the Trinity? People? People who are the crowning achievement of his creation? People who are made in his image and because they're made in his image they have inherent value and worth given from the divine himself. People who he loves so much that as Jesus illustrates, he is willing to leave the 99 sheep who are going along the way just to go find the one who has wandered astray. People who Jesus weeps over as he sits on the outskirts of Jerusalem because of what they've become and because of what they're doing. People who Jesus says in Luke 15, 7, that there is great joy in heaven when just one, just one sinful person is saved. People. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. And so we think to ourselves, Jesus is coming back. And I can't completely perceive what it's going to be like or what I'm going to be thinking or what I'm going to be feeling. But I can imagine that if the Bible's representation is true and that the experience of people and those types of uh, interactions would be applicable to me, then at that moment, when I am presented with the radiance of the glory of Jesus, I will be brought to my knees. And my thoughts and my motives and my actions will be laid before him and all will become clear very, very quickly. On that day, what will I give to him in worship? What can I give him? Well, the obvious answer is, of course, I'm going to give him myself. And beyond that, what can I give? 
I want to worship him in any way that I can because that's what people do when they're confronted with radiant majesty. What will I present to him? I know. I could give to him my nice watch. It was a good gift to me and it was valuable. But then again, he stands outside of time. What does he need a watch for? I I know, I know. I could give to him my car. I'm a car guy. I like cars. I like that car. But then again, he just descended from heaven in the sky. A car is not going to be very valuable to him. I know, I could give to him the thing that I have invested in the most throughout my whole life, my career. And all of the benefits of my career I will lay before him. I've trained for that career. I've worked hard for that career. I've spent hours and hours and weeks and months and years on that career. I've invested what I have into it. And then you think about that and you say, as helpful as my career may be and as good that it is for me, it's actually probably not all that valuable or at least not the most valuable to him. So what could I do to worship him? What will give him the greatest honor? What will give me the greatest joy as I see his delight? People. You can present him with people. Investing in people for the Lord will give you great joy at his coming. And this is the ordinary maturing process of the Christian. They receive and they give. And this is from the Lord through people, and it's to the Lord, through people. Investing in people for the Lord will give you great joy at his coming. And you need to know that when you decide to do that, when you move from a self-centered life to an others-centered life, and you say, I'm going to invest in people for the sake of the Lord, then This is tough business, but it's worth it. And that's what the rest of chapter 3 really describes for us. We'll make a couple of observations that serving the Lord is tough business, but it's worth it. We see in verses 1 through 4 that there's great affliction that happens when you serve the Lord by serving people. And that this affliction is something that is expected by Paul and hard for them to endure And it's complicated to think of how affliction for the gospel plays out in our time. Because there's complex variables in that. Some of you are in spheres of people where every single one of them would identify in some way, shape, or form as a Christian and be open and amenable to the things of God. You're probably not going to experience affliction for the gospel with them. Others of you will be with groups of people or pockets of the country where nobody identifies as a Christian and they have a completely opposite worldview and there's probably great affliction in that context. And most of us live in the in-between. 
where we have some people who identify with the Lord, other people who don't, and therefore we don't experience that much affliction, probably not as much as we think that we should, and there's probably some reasons for that. So very plainly, when you serve the Lord by investing in people, just know that affliction is a reality. And affliction is very simply when the values of Christ or the goals of the gospel contradict the goals of the culture, affliction will occur. But you know what? One of the great things we see about this is that this investing in other people is a team effort. We see that this team of apostles sends one of their own to go check on these people because of their care and concern for them. So Timothy goes and he engages them. And, and you see the great joy that happens when you invest in other people because verse 8 gives us this statement that at first glance seems a bit dramatic, maybe overly dramatic. But if you've ever invested in somebody else for the sake of the Lord and all you desire to see is that they stand firm and grow and grow and grow, then this resonates with you. He says, for now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord. My life blood, my emotions, my goals, my desires are And the success metric for my life is somehow in relation to you, to somebody else, standing fast in the Lord. That's an other-centered life. And then we see in verses 11 through 13, the wonderful increase of love and establishment of holiness in the lives of these people. And so we ask the question, are you an others-centered person? Or are you still stuck in self-centeredness that is so pervasive in our culture? Self-fulfillment and self-centeredness. And I'm not simply speaking of being an outward-looking, other-centered person in a general sense. Though that's a great personality trait or quality to have. I'm thinking, and this text is thinking specifically about being an other-centered person for the sake of the gospel. Because you recognize that the end of all things is coming, that the Lord is coming back, and you want to be prepared for the incredible moment of unencumbered worship. What will you give to him? Are you self-centered or are you other-centered? Well, let's maybe ask some diagnostic questions to help us move this closer to the ground. Here's a way that you can know. We could ask 10 or 15 questions. I'm just going to ask four. How about if you are nearly always concerned only with your own spiritual experience, you might be a self-centered person. But if your love for God and your appreciation for his grace compels you to look to the person next to you because you want them to have the same thing that you have, then you're growing and being others-centered. Another one, if you regularly look out for the growth of others, even at the cost of your own preferences, you might be an others-centered person. 
But if your preferences for aesthetics or music or certain teachers or certain topics, if those things become the litmus test or the gauge of your spiritual desires, well, then you still struggle with a self-centered outlook. Here's another one. If you look for opportunities to serve others with no gain for yourself, you're definitely growing as an other-centered person. But if, when every opportunity approaches you, your immediate default reaction is, what's in it for me? Well, then obviously you're struggling with self-centeredness. Or how about this one? If you're looking to share the gospel through conversation with people, then you're certainly growing as an other-centered person. But if you never share the gospel, for whatever reason it might be, maybe you're afraid, maybe you don't want to be uncomfortable and you seek comfort, or you might just be struggling with self-centeredness because comfort-seeking is a hallmark of a self-centered disposition. I'm not highlighting these diagnostic questions to beat up on anybody. I mean, I assume that you're here, you're here today, you're here with some regularity because you want to grow in the Lord and these are some practical ways that we can grow together. And part of the way that you want to grow in the Lord is you want to be prepared for when he comes back. (laughs) So picture it with me as we close. Close your eyes if it helps. Picture the return of Jesus. It's hard to imagine, I know, but he's coming. And at his coming, he will give, you will give him, you will give him yourself. He will know all of your strengths and all of your weaknesses, all of your faults, all of your good deeds, all of your sins. And you will see his perfection. And if you have your faith in him to forgive you, then he will display all of his love to you and you will want to display all of your love to him. In adoration and in worship. What will it be like to give him your hope and your joy and your crown Everything good and honorable and valuable to you that would have value to him. What is that moment like as you say, Lord, I give you these things. I love you so much that I invested in Mark and Sally and John and Melissa. And I shared the gospel with Tim and Peter and Jennifer. And I tried my best to help others grow in maturity as I encouraged them. And their names are Amy and Steve and Adam and on and on and on the list goes. People. People. Investing in people for the Lord will give you great joy at his coming. Let's pray together.
Father, continue to grow us as self-centered people to other-centered people. Continue to change our appetite for success and what success means in this life. Continue to foster within us a sense of urgency at the imminent coming of the Son. And may that motivate us for the days in between. Amen.